This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College takes great pride in its diversity. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Ambassador Ruben Brigitte, Dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. We're talking to him about the Trump administration's approach to foreign policy, staffing, and the forgotten continent of Africa. Ambassador Brigadier previously served as representative of the United States to the African Union and was named permanent representative of the U.S. to the U.N. Economic Commission for Africa. He also has served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of African Affairs and in the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration. He's also a lifetime member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Ambassador, talk to us, if you would, about diplomatic staffing at this point. We, we hear as the average American that there are a lot of positions not filled. Um, we get contrasting arguments whose fault that is. Uh, from the White House, we hear it's Congress's fault. From Congress, we hear it's the White House. Fault. But first of all, is that true? And secondly, why does that make such a big difference? Let me start with why it makes such a big difference. Um, the importance of the articulation and execution of American foreign policy um, uh, abroad and at home is vitally important for the national interest of the United States of America. Uh, our uh, American diplomacy doesn't simply just run on autopilot. Uh, there are there is a constantly um, uh, changing array of events uh, that pop up around the world, uh, as well as relationships that need to need continued uh, maintenance. Uh, and development, and you can't simply just uh, assume that everything will work out uh, until such time as you have your um, uh, your diplomatic corps, or your diplomatic positions fully staffed up. The world continues. Now, uh, given the system that we have in the United States with such large numbers of uh, of presidential appointees, it inevitably takes um, some amount of time for even the most organized uh, incoming administration to uh, vet its nominees, to have them proposed to the Senate, and then with the inevitable uh, politicking or controversy around some uh, candidates, that does take some time. Uh, but this is, I think it's fair to say, uh, the most slow and chaotic uh, transition uh, that we've seen in decades, uh, certainly as it relates to the uh, State Department and the Defense Department, I should say, as well. Now, um, one one could blame the Senate for the slowness of confirmation of appointments, but you can't blame the Senate for the slowness in the nomination of appointments. Right. Right. That is completely uh, the role of the uh, of the executive branch, and I think there are a number of contributing factors to that. And one is, I think, uh, the 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 
administ- the transition team uh, for President-elect Trump was uh, not nearly as organized, particularly after the firing of Governor Chris Christie, who was in charge of the transition. Uh, so they were just behind the curve from the very beginning in terms of the, uh, who they wanted to select. If you will recall, of course, the uh, famous, very, very public vetting of multiple um, nominees to be Secretary of State um, uh, by the president at his uh, uh, country club in New Jersey until he finally settled on uh, current Secretary Rex Tillerson. Uh, And then I think they went four months before even naming, uh, nominating um, the deputy, John Sullivan, who's finally been confirmed. Uh, So so that's that's the one piece. The second piece uh, is uh, the secretary's decision to, quote-unquote, take his time. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, figuring who he wants in various um, uh, various uh, positions around the State Department, even as the same time as he walked in the department uh, four weeks after his being nominated and being told to swallow essentially a 30% budget cut, and being told and then telling the entire department that they would um, decrease by 2,300 staffers without any um, any analysis behind that, and then now trying to do the analysis across the department to basically fit that that cut. I mean, this is the completely backwards approach to all of this. And then, frankly, the effect that it is having is, just in terms of the personnel piece, is uh, on the one hand, um, a number of people that are seeing uh, this chaos uh, who might otherwise be prepared to serve, who are at, at a minimum giving it a second look or, or in some cases simply deciding just outright, no, they were not going to um, um, uh, join this administration, uh, which is not good for America. Uh, and then the second thing that is happening is, just certainly from my conversations with a number of uh, career uh, people at the State Department, both career uh, civil service and foreign service at all, all levels, is an unbelievable demoralization, and frankly, uh, in some cases, people simply deciding it's not worth it to continue to stay uh, under this environment. I mean, not only in an environment where um, there is such um, uh, chaos regarding appointments, but also, frankly, where they see the department itself uh, being undercut, not only by the White House, but arguably, in, in, in some cases, uh, the entire career staff not being supported by the secretary and his immediate uh, small coterie people around him. So, uh, I, as an American, want for this to work, and I want for the secretary to be successful and for the president to be successful in the advancement of American interests abroad, but it's hard to see how this approach can lead to that. The lack of these people and and all of the conditions that you just uh, referred to, Ambassador, does this, for the person out here in the hinterlands, does this go to the creation of policy or the uh, affection of policy, uh, or both? It's both, right? And uh, and and for the you know average American who's you know working in his factory in Nebraska or you know tending her st- her store in in Ohio, you really have to ask questions. I mean, so 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 what's the big deal, right? I mean, because the average American, frankly, only sees the very biggest parts of American foreign policy taking place, right. war, or peace, whatnot. But that's exactly the point. I mean, there are so many other things that are constantly happening around the world that are, that uh, either directly affect our interests or may or whatnot that have to be managed. Uh, and uh, it's those sorts of things that have to be managed precisely so they don't become one of the very big things um, that is being negatively impacted. 
um, by both the process in terms of selecting people, but also, frankly, and to your point, um, by the uh, unbelievably you know, chaotic, amorphous, uh, and I would argue unprofessional um, way in which this administration is uh, approaching uh, the average development of, of foreign policy to deal with everything from um, you know, crises in the Persian Gulf to narrow engagement in the South China Sea to, uh, to a number of other places. In my recollection of history, most of the time when somebody comes into office of the president, you have some idea of their, at least their philosophy towards foreign policy, if not specific foreign policy initiatives. It's hard to feel that at this point. Is is that accurate? Well, I think it is accurate. It, and let me say as well, this is not a partisan issue. No, I can think no. of uh, a number of Republican presidents. Uh, uh, you think of George H.W. Bush. Right. You think of uh, President Reagan, um, uh, who, you know, President George W. Bush. I mean, there are any number that sure. may have had worldviews with whom I disagreed. Um, but they were surrounded by, you know, top-notch professional uh, teams um, uh, I think particularly in the uh, George H.W. Bush administration as well as the uh, the Reagan administration um, that were committed to the full suite of tools to advance American interests to include diplomacy as well as our defense uh, establishment um, and uh, that had, you know, essentially a worldview. Uh, and, and let me say this, America first is not a worldview. Not because we shouldn't be looking out for American interests. Of course, we should be looking out for American interests. I mean, that's the same for every other sovereign country. And frankly, I would argue that you know every American president has done that. But it doesn't give you much of an understanding for what sorts of resources and what sorts of priorities you're going to be. So, for example, what is the American first strategy to an Ebola outbreak? Or what is the American first strategy to trying to de-escalate a crisis on the Korean Peninsula? Or what's an America first strategy to climate change, you know, that affects the entire planet, uh, regardless of whether or not you believe the science, right? I mean, so so these are questions um, that are pressing and which, quite frankly, the president of the United States does not have a coherent answer. And I think you can sort of determine based on the fact of how much he has pivoted even since he's been president in the five months that, that he's been in the office. So, uh, of course, you know, as things develop, you know, one has to, um, you know, make adjustments. You, you attack and you, uh, you trim your sails here, here or there. Uh, but the wholesale uh, reversal on everything from whether or not NATO is irrelevant to uh, whether or not you know Muslims are essentially should be uh, banned or not, uh, or how one is going to engage you know Saudi Arabia, which is essentially the capital of Wahhabism, which is where um, is the underlying philosophy for uh, so much of uh, these other incidents we're seeing around the world. I mean, this is this is really unprecedented, and one hopes um, that the president uh, will have an opportunity with him his team to uh, to develop a more coherent coherent uh, approach to the world in very short order. One might look at the America First slogan, but uh, in some of the actions uh, since January as being maybe a move more towards isolationism. Is, would that be an accurate perception? I don't know how you could be moving towards isolationism at the same time that you're, you're launching cruise missiles against Syria. 
Okay. Or I don't know how you could be moving towards isolationism at the same time as you're being increasingly provocative uh, with North Korea, right? And that's my point, gotcha. right? Is that um, these that that slogan is not at all consistent uh, with how the president is thinking through uh, any of these sorts of issues, and it's frankly not much of a strategy. Which the, and then that gets to the point of what we were saying before with regard to uh, the the vital need for instructions to our diplomats at our embassies all around the world. So um, America first is not enough to hang your hat on when you're trying to sort of figure out how we should be you know, managing the, the, you know, our bilateral relationship with China, which is the most important and complex bilateral relationship on the planet. Nor is it enough to try to figure out how you should be approaching our collective allies in Europe uh, when on the one hand you're seeing you know the the contraction of the European Union on the other hand you know NATO our commitment to there is in some level of doubt even as we see resurgent um, uh, Russian activism you know all across the periphery of, uh, of the alliance so so this is um, not sufficient uh, a, a guiding framework for the advancement of American interests in uh, the first quarter of the 21st century. If we can move over a bit to the Defense Department, and I know that there are vacancies there as well, at least at the top of the Defense Department, there's a a veteran that a lot of people uh, have some faith in. But talk about the relationship between the military and the Defense Department and their impact on foreign policy at this point. Well, um, like many, uh, both in Washington and around the country, I have a great uh, deal of regard for uh, Secretary Mattis. Uh, and he is a great American who cares deeply about uh, our country and is a true professional uh, in that role. Um, we have a strong tradition uh, in this country of civilian control of the military. Um, and as significant of that is that is also our strong uh, tradition of having a strong civilian uh, understanding of both the capabilities and limitations of military force uh, that are sprinkled both throughout the Defense Department and also in the White House. And um, as honorable as men like Secretary Mattis, like General McMaster, who's the National Security Advisor, are, I do think there is a reasonable concern and reasonable question uh, about whether or not uh, there is sufficient civilian understanding of uh, the military levers of power um, to uh, help to you know temper just frankly what their life experiences are. I mean they mm-hmm. have uh, they're incredibly experienced men but have spent their you know, life in uniform, and frankly uh, there is simply you know other types of wisdom, other types of information, other types of approaches to be had. Uh, from other um, civilian experts uh, who have spent their lives uh, also serving our country, but from a different perspective. Uh, and uh, the absence of that, and frankly, um, you know, the, the increasing reliance on Secretary Mattis to reassure allies around the world, uh, precisely because um, there is, uh, frankly, less... Um, less concern or, or, or less um, confidence that Secretary Tillerson uh, absolutely speaks for the president, uh, which is why, for example, when the Mexican foreign minister came to Washington two months ago, he didn't even bother to let the State Department know. He went straight to the White House. Um, so this is um, uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, concerning. And again, I very much hope that uh, the White House will take actions in short order to, uh, to take uh, the necessary corrections. 
We talked about the vacancies, in, and you talked about 2,300 being laid off at the uh, State Department. Uh, that brings us to the budget, and the budget uh, now being debated. What impact do you think uh, all of this chaos, and that's my word, uh, will have on the budgetary process? Well, first of all, I think that the proposal of a 30% cut to um, uh, the foreign uh, aid and foreign um, you know, foreign operations account uh, is outrageous. And a number of uh, members of Congress and senators, including uh, Republican senators, have said that such approaches are a dead-on arrival on Capitol Hill for good reason, uh, because they understand um, the importance of uh, this instrument of American power to advance our interests. Now, are there efficiencies to be had at the State Department and USAID? Almost certainly, uh, there all there always are. Um, but frankly, you know, suggesting a 30% cut to the State Department so that you could have a 54 billion dollar increase at the Defense Department, a, uh, a government agency, by the way, that cannot even produce a clean audit of itself. Uh, is uh, is penny wise and pound foolish, and and you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, Secretary Mattis has said that explicitly, as have uh, uh, a number of other retired three and four star generals and admirals, as has uh, one of Secretary Mattis's predecessors, uh, Robert Gates, uh, who previously was Secretary of Defense under both the Bush and uh, Obama administrations. So. Um, the fact that, again, you could sort of walk in the door and lay this kind of cut out there shows, uh, frankly, a very narrowly um, uh, construed uh, ideological approach to, uh, to America's instruments of influence uh, that is being pushed back uh, against by uh, professionals from uh, both uh, the, the legislative branch as well as, you know, people who have spent their lives both in uniform and in, in, uh, in, uh, in civilian attire uh, trying to work to advance America's interests all around the world. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University and its leadership and faculty strongly support diversity in all of its forms. The college has defined the concept of diversity as acceptance and respect for all and understands that each individual comes with a unique set of life experiences shaped along the dimensions of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, socioeconomic status, age, abilities, religious beliefs, political beliefs, and all other ideologies. At the Scripps College of Communication, diversity is about understanding one another and moving beyond simple tolerance to embracing and celebrating the rich dimensions contained within each individual. Diversity enables the exploration of varied life experiences in a safe, positive, and nurturing environment. To learn more and find out how you can become part of this diverse community, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I know in your career, Ambassador, you've spent a lot of time and, and a lot of your intellectual prowess in, in Africa and on the continent of Africa. Uh, it still seems to be the forgotten continent in the United States, does it not? 
Well, I think that's the point. It's really not being forgotten by many other people around the world, first and foremost, the Chinese. Um, and uh, this is a continent that, uh, frankly, very few Americans know an awful lot about. And I would also further submit that what you know, some Americans may, may may think they know about is, frankly, uh, dated information, You know, whether it be you know the famine of Ethiopia from, 40, from 35 years ago or the wars of liberation uh, from you know half a century ago or uh, the continent from which you know so many African Americans came to the United States uh, as slaves. Uh, and what it is now is a continent of 54 countries uh, that is home to you know six or seven, depending on how you count it, of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world. Uh, that is home to uh, the youngest population in the world, um, and that has 60% of the world's available arable land, uh, and that is becoming increasingly sophisticated in terms of uh, its own approach to multilateral diplomacy as well as um, um, essentially multilateral economic management, uh, and that the rest of the world is waking up to this. And um, the United States you know, could play a, a crucial role in uh, not only the uh, further uh, development of the continent in partnership with African countries, uh, but do so not only for Africa's sake, but also uh, uh, as a win-win, as it were, for American interests there as well. But in order to do that, you have to be there, and you have to sort of see it uh, as a diplomatic and economic priority for our, for our country. Uh, I think that uh, both Presidents Bush and President Obama did so. President Bush, George W. Bush, is wildly popular on the continent, deservedly so, uh, for everything he did, uh, not only to um, uh, help uh, stop a a raging AIDS epidemic uh, at the turn of the century, uh, but also for uh, his new approaches and new models of development assistance through, for example, the Millennium Challenge Corporation and President Obama, of course, you know, held the first ever, ever gathering of African heads of state uh, here in Washington in August 2014. Uh, this administration has been uh, curiously and noticeably quiet uh, on uh, on its approach to Africa. Is yet to nominate an assistant secretary of state for Africa. He's our sort of top diplomat for Africa. Has hasn't nominated anybody uh, to serve on the National Security Council as a senior director for Africa. Uh, and Africans are noticing this. Uh, and, and certainly in my conversations with African diplomats and my travels on the continent, um, there is, um, you know, in some quarters, great concern about this. But I would tell you, quite frankly, there is, in some, in some other quarters, relief um, that we have a president of the United States uh, that is not going to be talking to Africans about the importance of democracy or human rights. As the Secretary of uh, State himself has said, um, that such considerations are no longer prim- uh, primary uh, in the formulation and execution of American foreign policy. Um, and that is precisely the wrong signal, in my view, uh, that we ought to be sending to our uh, friends and colleagues on the continent. You mentioned China having a great interest in in Africa. Could you explain that a little bit? Is it through business, or or how is that relationship manifesting itself? It is largely through um, business and grants. So the Chinese... Um, are not only investing a great deal in various infrastructure projects on the continent, whether it be helping to build um, you know, a, a rail line in Kenya uh, that will essentially connect uh, multiple countries in, in East Africa, uh, to wanting to help to, uh, to build a, um, a rail network across the entire continent that will connect, uh, if, it, if it is completed, um, uh, every capital on the continent to 
being very aggressive in uh, trying to secure rights on everything from uh, mining concessions to uh, agricultural and forest concessions, uh, etc. But they are also, quite frankly, pursuing something of a neo-mercantilist model in the sense that absent infrastructure, they're actually not building or investing very much in... um, an industrial capacity in Africa to build finished goods there. Rather, what they're trying to do is, frankly, um, a, a more benign version of what uh, European uh, colonial powers did, you know, 150 years ago, which is essentially to extract uh, whether it be African cobalt, African coal, uh, African oil, uh, copper, uh, timber, uh, and other sorts of resources to take back to China for the purposes of being so developed and finished goods and then sold back to Africa and other places around the world. Um, but as uh, an African friend of mine said, um, the Chinese are there, right? And you deal with who's there. And I think that the uh, many African countries are becoming more and more sophisticated about this and are trying to get um, you know better deals in this regard. They certainly understand uh, the importance of building their own uh, industrial capacity. But the Chinese are being very good partners in that space, whereas we uh, in the United States could. Which is the other point I would make, and this is you know quite ironic given given uh, this president's uh, predilections, uh, that the future of American engagement in Africa simply has to defend, depend on the engagement of the American private sector there, because the next chapter of Africa's history will be defined by private sector-led economic growth. So to the extent that President Trump um, sees himself as a business person, uh, and if you you know buy that you know part of his American first strategy has to mean American uh, jobs and economic wins for America, uh, this should be a no-brainer uh, to find ways to support American firms uh, doing business on the continent for the purpose of uh, helping to create jobs back in the United States and also helping to. Uh, uh, create markets uh, in Africa of uh, middle-class consumers that could consume American goods and that could trade uh, African goods for American goods uh, and vice versa. Um, but again, uh, the president has not made you know any such um, uh, not made any such comments about that. He hasn't appointed anybody who could make those sort right. of comments as it relates to Africa. Uh, and so, uh, yet again, I think we all stand and wait to see exactly what the president will do in this regard. Let's talk, if we could, about climate change and the Paris Agreement and and pulling out of that and America's sort of uh, withdrawal from uh, the global uh, approach to climate change. How, if at all, would that impact Africa? First of all, it impacts everybody, right? And that's what makes climate change uh, such a um, compelling and vitally important international domestic problem in that you cannot solve it uh, with one country, even a smaller coalition of countries uh, alone. Everybody has to be involved. And uh, the um, uh, the Paris Accords, uh, with their voluntary targets, with, um, you know, they're trying to make the very best approach they can to balance between industrialized countries and developing countries is not perfect, but it is certainly a lot better than nothing, which is what the Trump administration is essentially uh, given. I mean, it, I mean, didn't it didn't even sort of withdraw with uh, with an option uh, concretely for renegotiation? Although they did say we would, would try to renegotiate, I think to a great deal of uh, of pushback, understandably, certainly from the French, but from others, uh, given how much effort it's taken to get um, uh, virtually all of the rest of the world on board with what was decided in Paris. Right. So it staggers the imagination, in my view, uh, for what the United States possibly gets 
uh, from pulling out of uh, this agreement with a series of voluntary targets uh, other than being able to say that they did it. Uh, as an example of what I suppose one interpretation of what America first means. Uh, and as one commentator said, it doesn't really mean America first, it means America alone. Um, so I very much hope um, that uh, the president uh, will have a change of heart on this, as he has demonstrated to have had a change of heart in other areas. Um, we are about to go into hurricane season here in the United States. Uh, we know that with warming climates, uh, storms will be more severe. Perhaps um, uh, this will uh, you know, uh, help him understand the urgency of dealing with this problem uh, when it, it's, it's more clear that it affects the United States. But so to your question about how will it affect Africa, how will the American withdrawal affect Africa, um, I think uh, quite negatively, frankly, um, because uh, the Africans will um, you know, not have the United States as a committed vocal you know, partner uh, as uh, uh, global climate policy, frankly, continues to be developed. Uh, and also back to the question of the economic gains, I mean, I think we are seeding the, the space for developing um, green technologies for energy production and others uh, to the Chinese, right? right. We already have a strong right. play in Africa uh, to a continent that is, you know, on the verge of its own uh, industrial revolution, but wants to have a green industrial revolution, and right, it will therefore be looking for green sources of power. And why would we possibly want to see that to the Chinese when we could be leaders in that space? It makes zero sense. Um, so um, I, I very much hope the president rethinks this decision and puts us on a path that is uh, uh, much more on a win-win for everybody concerned. Ambassador, last question, and that is uh, help us out, uh, people who follow foreign policy by perhaps uh, watching cable news or, or reading the New York Times or the Washington Post, what should we be looking at in the in the next six months in the next year? What what are the key issues that we need to uh, look at as citizens? Well, you know, inevitably there are some things that one one can expect um, are going to happen because they simply happen to be you know on a regular you know calendar, sure. um, uh, and then there are you know concerns uh, from crises that are boiling, and then there are things that you know you just sort of never know how it's going to happen. So I would suggest a couple of things. Um, one, I think, uh, given what I think has been. Um, less than positive debut uh, from the president on his first overseas trip. I know the White House thinks it was uh, incredibly successful. I do not agree, uh, particularly the way in which uh, the president handled our traditional allies uh, in Brussels. I think uh, a, a, a another thing to look for will be how the president engages with other world leaders at the upcoming annual uh, UN General Assembly Summit uh, in, uh, in September, which happens every year. Uh, and the extent to which the president uh, offers a um, either a more nuanced and more positive uh, uh, approach for American engagement in the world when he speaks, if he chooses to speak, I hope he will, at the UN General Assembly, uh, or if he doubles down on a series of approaches which have um, uh, not proven, uh, in my view, uh, very popular with our traditional allies, will be one thing to watch for. I think another thing to watch for, obviously, will be how the president uh, handles some very sensitive and very tricky flashpoints, uh, uh, chief amongst them being North Korea. Um, but also, I think uh, his uh, the very strong signal he has sent not only to the Saudis but to all the uh, Arab Gulf states 
um, suggest that they will have um, uh, both American support for a much freer hand in dealing with uh, what they perceive to be um, their uh, uh, threats to their traditional interests, principally Iran, but also you know proxies uh, there too um, in um, in, uh, in in Yemen, uh, potentially uh, in in Iraq, uh, given the Shia majority there, and then also potentially, frankly, um, uh, you know how one how they deal with the situation in Qatar, where we have five thousand, I think five to ten thousand American troops based. Right. Uh, and then the final thing, frankly, to watch will be how will the United States respond when the when the next big major humanitarian situation happens somewhere. Uh, whether it be a cyclone that you know runs into the Philippines, or whether it be uh, uh, droughts in East Africa, which threatens to kill um, uh, large numbers of people, or whether it be you know the eruption of a uh, of a volcano in, uh, in in Latin America or somewhere, right? I mean, I think um, every administration um, comes in uh, with skepticism about the the relevance of foreign aid, and yet when things go bad and people question what can what a president says, what can we do about it? He or she recognizes the value of uh, that instrument uh, of American capability, and I think that we will have to see uh, what, if anything, the president decides to do uh, when we see the next humanitarian disaster happening. There, I mean, they're they're already happening. They they've been sort of in slow motion, as it were, like what's in terms of what's happening in South Sudan. But uh, when there is another major event that happens on his watch, fully on his watch, what will he do? And I think we'll know an awful lot him about him as a person, as a man, when that happens. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. It it was a pleasure talking with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Today, we've been talking with Ambassador Ruben Brigadier, Dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, about the Trump administration and foreign policy. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions about this or any of our other podcasts or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.